Once again, uh, happy Easter to you all. It's a big day. We don't normally, you know, just blow it out. Um, Easter. Uh, it's a big day, especially for those who are employed by church, you know, the professional Christian type. Um, the crowd's a little larger. There's an anticipation in the air. Um, and, and there's even the temptation to feel like we need to, you know, bring our A game. Um, sort of the, the church equivalent of leaving it all on the field. Leave it all in the sanctuary, I guess. Um, but recently I heard a story of, of a priest who, um, who approached Easter Sunday a little bit differently. He uh, basically did this. Upon the time to, to deliver his sermon, uh, the priest simply stood up in the lectern. He looked at his congregation and said, Happy Easter. It's all true. Amen. And he sat down. It was simple. From what I understand, it was actually quite powerful. Because the reality is, that's what we came to hear, right? Now, I'm not entirely sure how that approach would work here. Um, It's been a busy week, so I'd be lying if I say it didn't cross my mind. Maybe, you know, try that out. See how that... (laughs) See how that works. Um, not really, but yeah, maybe. Um, one of the reasons it was a busy week for me uh, was simply the amount of, of big stories that you saw in the news uh, that, that caught our attention, especially early in the week. Two stories got a tremendous amount of coverage. And the first of these actually took place while we were in worship last week. Tiger Woods winning his first major tournament victory in over a decade. Tiger Woods, this, this golf prodigy who, who dominated the sport from his late teens or through his early 30s, only to implode through a series of, of personal scandals and, uh, and debilitating physical injuries. And after declaring that he was done back in 2017, two years later, he is back on top, beating a bunch of 20-year-olds. The second story that that captured the attention, not just of our our country, but the entire world, was the devastation that that took place in Paris. As the Cathedral of Notre Dame, this breathtakingly beautiful 800-year-old Gothic work of art became immersed in flames for over nine hours. And though not completely destroyed, the damage was beyond catastrophic. And though not equal in their significance, those are two very different stories, as they've been described over the last week or so, I've, I've frequently heard, maybe you've heard it too, this imagery of resurrection. Maybe it's, you know, everybody's, Easter's on everybody's mind or whatever, but, you know, tiger coming back from the dead. The pledge from government officials and donors, that one day the cathedral will, will rise up again just like Jesus. Again, maybe resurrection's on all our minds, but, but resurrection is frequently used as, as, a, as a metaphor, a metaphor to describe things that, that were once so great but, but have fallen, but we long to see restored to their former glory. And in this sense, you know, it's not unlike the you know, image of Greek mythology, the the notion of a phoenix, right? The, the bird that would, would die in a fire, and then, and then from those ashes, a bird would rise. And the idea that out of, out of death comes rebirth. Out of winter 
comes spring. Out of hardship comes, comes growth. All, all these metaphors can, can apply so well, can't they, to, to our lives, to the stuff that, that we go through over the course of our lives, of, of devastation and yet growth. But though that, that metaphor could apply to a host of situations, the Apostle Paul is going to make abundantly clear in our passage today that, that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than just a metaphor. It's more than just an inspiring story. But to borrow from the sermon I alluded to before, it's all true. So I'd invite you to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. This is the passage that we're going to be reading. It's found on page 12 of your worship folder. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8 and then verses 12 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection. Of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, uh, kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we give you thanks again for your word, the truth of it. 
and for your ability to, to use it. And we pray now that, that by your spirit you would, you would take these, your words, and, and illuminate them, illuminate our hearts so that we might encounter you. And I pray, Father, as I attempt to preach this morning, uh, that the words of my mouth and, Lord, that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The title of today's message, alluded to it earlier, is It's All True. And what I want to do today is, to, is for us to see the three points, three points from our, our text concerning the resurrection. First, I want us to acknowledge the struggle with the resurrection. Second, I want us to see the necessity of the resurrection. And lastly, I want to look for the evidence of the resurrection. Okay? So that's, that's it. Struggle, necessity, evidence. First, the struggle with the resurrection. And, and this one might seem obvious enough, right? Why might people struggle with the resurrection? Well, People who are completely dead generally have a history of staying that way. Okay, there's there's great precedent on this. Um, I mean, the idea that someone could be completely dead for an extended period of time and then be walking around days later doesn't really happen. And we might be tempted to think, you know, that's a new struggle. It's a new struggle for us. You know, we're we're enlightened, sophisticated. Scientifically minded people, you know, unlike those ignorant people way back when, we know, we know that that dead people don't come back to life. We have heart monitors, we have brain scans. We know that. Those people, I mean, they're just, they're foolish. But here's the thing these people had a pretty good idea what dead meant. It's, in the words of of C.S. Lewis, chronological snobbery that that we would think that this struggle about the resurrection is is particular to us. Because we see it in our passage, don't we? Take a look at, at verse 12. And Paul asked the question, how can some of you say that Christ has not been raised from the dead? This was a struggle for them, for the Corinthian church. To believe this. And what I want us to see for a few moments in in this first point is that they have a struggle, and their struggle actually might be, in a sense, particular to what's going on with them and their culture and the way they understand reality. And it might actually look different than, say, our struggle. To understand why this resurrection business would have been such a huge obstacle for them, it's helpful to know a little bit about Greek philosophy of this day and age that had naturally influenced many people in the church. And the philosophy that was up and going was this. The physical body, the physical world, was bad. It was evil. It was corrupt, which on a certain level kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the older you get, think about the body. I mean, the older you get, so many of the problems that we we experience are with our our bodies. They, They break. They're not like there used to be sort of thing. And so the hope for these enlightened, sophisticated, 
philosophically minded people was that, that we need to escape the body. We need to get rid of the body. We don't want to be in bodies that get sick and break and get old and die. I mean, we want to get rid of all that. We want to escape all of that. And so for them, their focus was on the spiritual. Okay? Who cares about this whole body business? That's the cultural mindset that's up and running. And so here comes Paul. Proclaiming that Jesus Christ physically, bodily, not just some spirit, physically rose from the dead. And for those who think this way, they're going, ugh. Like, why would we want that? Not, not sure if we're, that, that seems kind of odd and not really jiving with the way we see the world. The resurrection was also a struggle, we even see in our passage, for, for a Jewish way of thinking, okay? For a great many Jewish people, no, no Sadducees, but for most folks, there was the belief in the resurrection of the dead. But the way this would work is that would happen at the end. Everybody would get resurrected at the same time. We see this even in, in John chapter 11. When Martha's talking about her brother Lazarus, she says, I know my brother w- will, will rise at the resurrection on the last day. In other words, when everybody rises together, Paul's actually going to address that in this passage too. Verse 24, you know, Christ the first fruits, and then those who belong to Christ. In other words, the Jewish mindset, what Jesus is up to here, the way this whole resurrection business works, was a struggle for them as well. But it begs the question, it's what I want us to consider for a few moments. If those were their struggles... What about our struggles? Why might we struggle with the resurrection specific to the way that we experience the world, the way that we understand reality? One struggle that's been up and running for the last several hundred years is materialism. Is the idea that, that all that exists is what you can touch, what you can see, what you can hear, that there's, there's no transcendent reality that created and, and governs the universe. There's just this. And so whereas Greeks believed in the soul, they just, you know, didn't like the body, materialism questions whether we have a soul at all. We're just bodies. If there's no soul, there's no reuniting the soul to the body, and there's no God anyway to bring all that about. And so the resurrection doesn't make any sense for materialists. Many believe that. But I would submit to you today that that as we think about sort of the reality of living 21st century America, even beyond, that is not the primary problem that most of us are wrestling with. That's not the issue with the resurrection of our day and age. The problem that we all face nowadays, and I say we because we're all impacted by this, is that of secularism. I mentioned this book before. A guy named Charles Taylor wrote a book, a very, very important book, entitled A Secular Age. And what he does in the book is basically offers an explanation on what it looks like to believe in the world in which we live now. What does belief look like in our secular age, and and how did we get here? And what he says is that in our day and age, the most virtuous characteristic that a person could be is authentic. You like that word, right? It means real. I like being authentic. And so 
with this whole notion of I want to be real. I want to keep it real. I want to be authentic. The idea is, is that, that we're on this ever elusive quest to, to find out what is real and what is true and to discard whatever is false, which leads us to question all the time. Question anything and everything, all for this purpose of finding truth. What is really, really true? We, again, being authentic, that's a good word, right? Sounds like a good thing. There's a sense in which it is. But what's happened is that as we've begun to question everything, picked apart everything, torn down everything that we believe to be false, along with living in a world where there's an endless barrage of people claiming to have truth. This is true. No, this is true. This is true. And what Taylor refers to as as a world of contested belief. Everything's up for grabs. What ends up happening is that human beings become perpetual skeptics. We become these people that, 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 where there's a growing cynicism that, that we could know anything at all. And so... We're not really replacing our beliefs with, like, new beliefs. Basically, we just sort of aren't believing in much of anything, but but still longing to. We're we're searching for an anchor, but but any anchor that comes along, we, we question whether or not it's actually true. This is our struggle. This is our struggle with the resurrection in our time and place. The notion that anybody could actually ever say anything that is true. And here comes the Apostle Paul declaring in verse 21, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And it makes all the difference in the world. It's the most important thing that's ever happened. Brings us to our second point for the day. The necessity of the resurrection. Paul includes the resurrection as, as an essential component to the gospel message. Look, look, verse 1 and 2. I would remind you of the gospel, which you received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved. And then verses 3 and 4. He explains that gospel there. For I delivered to you, here's the gospel that, that you believed, of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel, this good news that we all talk about, according to Paul, who seems to be appealing to an early quotation or early creed in the church, consists of this. The Messiah, the Christ being crucified for our sin, and rising from the dead. And Paul says this is of first importance. That it's the core that these events took place in real time and real space. That is the core of the gospel. And to reject the notion of the resurrection means that Jesus himself wasn't raised from the dead. And if that didn't happen, then the whole deal falls apart. The whole deal's worthless. Why? Well, Paul gives at least three reasons. 
by the resurrection is necessary for the validity of Christianity. It all's about the resurrection. It's not good grammar. Stay with me, okay? All about the resurrection. Three reasons. The first reason. The resurrection validates the claims of Jesus. Take a look at verses 14 through 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and we are found to be misrepresenting God. Throughout the, the early ministry of Jesus, and the, I'm sorry, the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus said a lot of things. A lot of things that, that we can find on you know, bumper stickers, billboards, T-shirts, things that are often quoted, things that, that, that people, whether you believe in Jesus or not, might consider to be, to be wise, to be, to be good. We go, we, yeah, we like that. And for a number of religions, worldviews, philosophies, that's, that's all that really matters. The teacher communicates a particular set of, of, of practices, rituals, wisdom, whatever, and, and those who like it go, yeah, I, I like that. That's good. That's good. And, and, and basically the teacher is saying, yeah, if you accept this, you practice this, you will be right with God. Or you'll be blessed. Or you'll experience enlightenment. Or you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Whatever, whatever the end goal is. But in in that model, what ultimately matters is not the teacher himself. It's the content of that teaching. And so as far as historical details are concerned, you know, what happened and, and how they happened and whether or not they actually happened, that doesn't really matter all that much. And some have actually tried to do this with Jesus. Thomas Jefferson famously took apart the four Gospels and, and got his little razor blade and cut out what, you know, this is good. Here, and he made a whole book by it. The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? He basically took away anything miraculous. Here's the wise stuff that Jesus says. And what Paul is saying here is that does not work with Jesus. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what Jesus taught was nothing more than a lie. Jesus wasn't just claiming to be some guru, some moral teacher. He was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be the Israel, uh, king of Israel. He was claiming to be God. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all you have is a guy who said a few things that people may like, but mostly just said a bunch of crazy stuff that didn't turn out to be true, and they killed him for it. And therefore, Paul says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, what he himself, Paul, is communicating about God to people, and what the people are believing, is a lie. And let's let this hit a little closer to home. What I'm doing right now What you're doing in listening to me. What you're doing in believing this stuff. According to Paul, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, it is a complete waste of time. Why? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's not a good man. He's not a person we should listen to. He's a liar or a crazy person. But if he did rise from the dead, 
And that means that what he said is actually true. Why else? Why else is the, is the resurrection necessary for Christianity to be true? Well, the second reason is, is that the resurrection confirms that our sins have been paid for. It confirms that atonement has been made. Take a look at, at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's worthless, and you are still in your sins. Okay, I want to, let's step back from that for a moment. I want to ask the text some questions real quick. What does Paul mean here? Because, you know, if I were to ask you this question, when was your sin paid for? If you're a believer, you look to Jesus, when, when was your sin paid for? I suspect, if, if you've got some familiarity with this story, you would say, the cross, the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay. But if Jesus took care of our sins at the cross, if he paid our debt there, if he absorbed the wrath of God there, then why is the resurrection necessary? You may or may not realize this, those of you who know me, but I can be a tad OCD. Okay? Word may be out. Um, Only about certain things. And, And one of those things happens to be Receipts at gas stations. All right, through the through the miracle of modern technology, uh, we can now go to the pump. This has been around for a while. Um, you can slide your card, you pump gas, and you never really have to interact with another human being. It's great, but for me, for whatever reason, for me, there's something within me. Where when I see that, do you want the receipt thing? I feel compelled to say yes. I want it bad. In fact, if I get in my car and I forget it, I'll go back. And if they're out of paper, I'm going inside. I need, I need the receipt. Because if should anyone question it, should they call the cops and they're coming after me, or somebody in the you know the. the in the building, they're looking at me. I want the receipt that says my debt has been paid. I have covered this. I want that validation. I want that verification that the transaction is complete. And that's what the resurrection is. It is the receipt that the payment has been accepted and your debt has been paid for. Because without the resurrection, all you got is a dead guy on a cross with the resurrection, that death of his has meaning. It means that Jesus set out what he accomplished to do, which was to pay for your sin. So there's the second reason, the necessity of the resurrection that Paul says. Um, first, you know, atonement's been, or first, validates the claim of Jesus. Second, atonement's been made. The third, that the resurrection of Jesus means is that we have hope. We have hope for the future. Take a look at verses 18 and 19. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, if there is no resurrection, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people of all most to be pitied. Paul makes it clear here that without the resurrection of Jesus, death won. Death 
is the end. Because as we said before, dead people have a way of staying dead. Death actually defeated Jesus. And it will defeat us all permanently without the resurrection of Jesus. But with the resurrection of Jesus, there's actual hope. There's hope because Jesus is the first fruits. First fruits that Paul is using agricultural language from the Old Testament. The, the idea of the first fruits uh, is, are, are the things that come first. It, it's, 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 the, it's the foretaste of what's coming later. And so Jesus is rising from the dead means, as the first fruits, that there is a harvest coming. There is a harvest coming of other people who will rise from the dead as well. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, that is you. That you are part of this harvest of which Jesus is the first fruits. It also means that those people who have gone before us that Paul alludes to here are with Jesus. If they've loved and trusted Jesus, that that they are with him now and that we will see them again one day and that we will worship at the feet of Jesus together. Because of the resurrection, we can believe that Jesus is alive even this second. That he's reigning even this second. Which means the world that you live in right now has meaning because Jesus is on the throne of it. History has meaning because Jesus is ushering in his kingdom and he will put all of his enemies under his feet. He will destroy every rule and every power and every authority. That's the future. So often, the world we live in doesn't feel that way at all, does it? There seems like this, there's this massive disconnect between a world where there's sickness and there's death and there's confusion and there's hurt and there's all sorts of the experience of living in a broken world. But because the resurrection, we can approach that world And we can be realists about what's going on, but we can do so with hope. We could even stare our own deaths in the face. It's told in seminary that that's basically basically the point of a minister is to prepare his people to die. To prepare us for the reality that death comes to us all and to be able to look at death and know it's been conquered. Because of what we celebrate here today. That all of this can be true. Because of the resurrection of the dead. And Paul wants these people to believe it's true. That this actually happened. It's not a metaphor. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a nice idea to describe some spiritual experience. or, Or just to apply to anything and everything. That it took place in real time. In real space. He's going to show that to them this morning. He's going to show that to them so that they can lean into it, so they can trust it. Which brings us to our our third point for this morning. The evidence of the resurrection. And Paul's going to show the validity of the resurrection in two ways. Two ways. First, he's going to point them to Scripture. I mean, it may sound a little repetitive. We saw back in verses 3 and 4, you know, it says, you know, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ was raised according to the Scriptures. He says it twice. Now, that whole, according to the scriptures business, what that meant for these folks 
was the Old Testament. The New Testament was, was not written yet. It was being written at that point. But what Paul wants them to see is that, is that this message of a crucified and risen Messiah is consistent with, it's derived from, and ultimately the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That the Old Testament by itself is an incomplete story. But it's a story that's, that's moving towards what happened here. And he's doing this because he wants them to see this is not something I just made up. This is not something a couple of guys, we just conjured this story up. He's saying that this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. This notion of sacrifice of sin is a constant theme throughout the Bible. In Isaiah, it gets personified with the suffering servant being led as a lamb to the slaughter. And God delivering people from the death, from, from death, go read the Psalms. It's everywhere. Not to mention that Jesus himself connects his own experience to that of Jonah, spending three days in darkness before being rescued. Paul's point is this. You want evidence for the gospel message of the death and resurrection? Go read the Old Testament because it's all pointing to this. But Paul does something else to show the validity of the resurrection as well. He begins to mention individuals, people who who have encountered the risen Jesus and their lives were changed. He actually mentions three by name. Verse 5, he mentions Cephas. Dave mentioned Peter earlier. Cephas is also better known as Peter, the disciple who, who... during this Holy Week, claimed, I'm going to follow Jesus all the way, and then a little girl confronts him, and he cowers down. And content to go back to a life of fishing, living in guilt and shame, the risen Jesus meets with him and restores him. And a few weeks later, this same man has the courage to stand up in front of the religious establishment and tell them, you killed the Christ, now turn to him and believe in him and trust in him. He would continue with that same boldness throughout his life, his life that would ultimately culminate, according to tradition, with his own crucifixion for proclaiming this good news, this resurrection. I ask, where does one get the courage to do this, to overcome their guilt and their shame? It's not for a metaphor. It's because he met Jesus. He met the risen Jesus. Paul also makes reference to Jesus appearing to James, verse 7. James being the brother of Jesus. A brother who, who it's safe to say, wasn't exactly on board with all that Jesus stuff up until this point. Well, you see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. James, along with the rest of Jesus' family, believe that he is completely and totally out of his mind. And yet despite knowing the things that brothers tend to know about each other, right? Jesus' brother is going to become a leader in the early church. How does that happen? How do you go from thinking your brother's crazy and he gets killed to all of a sudden being a leader in the church? It happens because this is not a metaphor. But because he came into contact with the risen Jesus. Lastly, Paul mentions one final individual whose life was moving towards a particular trajectory until he came in contact with the risen Jesus. 
And that was himself. Verse 8, last of all, as one to untimely born, he also appeared to me. Paul was literally on his way to go murder Christians when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. I mean, if there was someone on this planet who hated Jesus and his followers any more than anyone else, it was Saul of Tarsus. And yet Paul will spend the rest of his days proclaiming the message that Christ Jesus died for our sins and was raised on the third day. Despite pain and imprisonment and persecution, that will be a constant reality up until his death. How in the world does Paul shift from hating Christians to becoming one of the most effective missionaries in the history of the church? Because this isn't a metaphor. Because he came into contact with the risen Jesus. And if those examples weren't enough, Paul adds that Jesus revealed himself to the rest of the disciples. And the more than 500 people who he says, many are still alive, making this potentially verifiable, go check them out, go talk to them, though some have fallen asleep. There are first-hand accounts, Paul says. Go talk to them. They've seen the risen Christ. You want proof? Go ask them. They're walking around. That's a bold statement if it ain't true. What it points to is the fact that it is. In fact, None of church history, none of the last 2,000 years really makes a lot of sense if this isn't true. The amount of people that were willing to suffer and die. Because for the last 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has testified to this message, to the reality of the resurrection. And when we believe it, when we lean into this, that Jesus is alive even now and reigning even now, the church has lived with the same type of confidence that these people, Paul, James, Peter, lived. They lived with hope. They lived with courage. They lived with changed lives. All giving evidence to the fact that this unbelievable story, it's believable. That this impossible story is actually possible. And we're invited to do the same today. We're invited to do the same today. To lean into this story. To look inside the empty tomb. And to believe it. To believe that it's all true. Whether that's for the first time ever or for the first time today or for the 50th time today. To be filled with wonder and confidence and hope because Jesus is alive, because it's true. And so, friends, happy Easter. It's all true. Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, would you make the, believe, the unbelievable believable in our hearts? Help us to know that this happened in time and space and it happened for us. We give you thanks and praise that you have accomplished for us. And I pray now as we continue to meet with you that you accomplish miraculous in our hearts as we please at your table. Pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.